Hi, I'm Colm O'Sullivan, and this is the Policy Options Podcast. This week, I'm sitting in my basement with a blanket over my head to muffle the sounds of my upstairs neighbors, a literal rock band. I, like many of you, work from home, and I have for a little over a year. My guest today knows a lot about this style of work. Jean-Nicolas Reit is an assistant professor of organizational behavior at McGill University and was studying work from home and mobile work for years before he got a rare opportunity for a researcher to see theories play out in the real world. Jean-Nicolas has been systematically tracking how top CEOs in the United States and Canada have been talking about work from home, how their assumptions have changed, and what is and isn't working. I'll be talking to him today as part of Policy Options series on digital connectivity. So Jean-Nicolas Wright, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off with just talking about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm an assistant professor of organizational behavior at McGill University in the Faculty of Management. And I study in my research the distances that people consider when they're working. So that includes when they're working remotely. I'm very, very interested in remote work and mobile work and have done a lot of research the past 10 years on the topic. And how did you get involved with the idea of working from home and mobile work? It's funny, I, I got my first computer, I think, when I was like 15 or something like that. And I've been obsessed with, you know, the internet and connectivity ever since. So I at first I created like a web advertising agency when I was straight out of college. I did that for two, three years. And then I decided to go and research. And when I was looking for a research topic, it just seemed to me that remote work was the most interesting topic of them all. And it was kind of like, a weird topic to pick because especially, you know, when I started my PhD a decade ago, it was kind of like the end of uh, the era of, you know, in organizational behavior of analyzing how people are working from home because we didn't really have any opportunity to look for more. And so a lot of research had already been done. And I found my niche by looking at mobile work, which is how companies have been providing since like 2008, providing mobile devices to employees so that they can work from home. And so it shares a lot of the characteristics of remote work in, in the sense of like blurring boundaries. So this topic of, of remote work has been revived, of course, by the pandemic. And, and you've been looking at earnings calls of major companies and what those CEOs are saying over the past year. Could you tell me a bit about that? Sure. So uh, my research is on the language that people use and how it impacts others, meaning uh, if people talk to you in a certain way, how are you going to be like, what are you going to think of them? Is it going to be convincing and all that kind of stuff? I've been really interested in what CEOs have been saying to their investors because all CEOs of publicly listed companies organize every quarter, a uh, recorded and transcribed meeting with their investors and analysts, and they answer a bunch of questions about their strategy and what's going on in the company. So that really gives you access to what CEOs of the top companies in Canada and you know in the rest of the world have been saying about how they run their operations. So I've been really doing a lot of research on trying to see longitudinally, meaning what's going on if you look at the first quarter after the you know the pandemic started. What about the second quarter? What are CEOs saying then? You know, and now I've, I have like a year of data, and so I've been really looking at how the situation has evolved, you know, in Canada over the past year, and how a CEO's mindset has changed over all of these months. You know, how how their assumptions have been questioned and changed, and what their plans are now. 
I feel like before the pandemic, we all knew some distant uncle who, who worked from home, and it wasn't really as big a part of our lives as it is now. Could you tell us what you saw in the telework landscape before COVID-19? So I think telework before COVID-19 was not a very, very well accepted form of work. It was typically reserved to either clerical workers, and then you would have higher level executives, higher level managers, because they're very independent. And so they were a lot of times allowed to work from home. But everything in the middle, it was very difficult for a lot of these people to, to have their company accept that they would work from home even part of the week. And one of the reasons for this is because uh, managers typically are not very excited at the idea of having a mixed team, of having a couple of teleworkers and a bunch of people in office. It's, it's, it's a lot more difficult to manage. I think also there are a lot of like, there were a lot of negative assumptions about what people actually do when they're working from home. And so, I mean, we've seen this year, right? The number of changes we had to do, you know, to be adapted to remote work. And so I think it just seemed at the time, in my opinion, before COVID-19, like a lot of changes and for what? You could just tell people that they couldn't do it and then they would just show up to work. And so you were saying, you know, like, oh, we all have an uncle. You might have a friend of an uncle who would be a remote worker, but it actually was something pretty rare. And it just didn't really happen up until we had a systemic shock that was so strong that we all had to do the switch. So it sounds like there was a lot of negative assumptions about working from home pre-pandemic. Where did those come from? So I think managers have habits and a lot of companies have developed habits to track productivity. And a lot of times they use peripheral indicators of productivity, such as is the employee showing up to work? Is the employee sitting at their desk? Do they look like they're working? Right. And so this is peripheral in the sense that we all know that the person could be showing up on time and be sitting at a desk and typing furiously on their computer, but still not be doing any work. And so when you remove that, all of these aspects, right, it, it looks a lot riskier. It makes it seem a lot riskier to say, well, not only are you not going to come to work when I can see you, but I'm going to have very limited opportunities to actually check your work. So that means that all of the management that I've been doing, where I'm kind of like checking on you daily, that's going to have to change. And all of the focus that I've been having, maybe like micromanaging you or telling you how to do your work, that's going to have to change as well because you can't work like that with a, a remote worker. They have to be more, more independent, have more autonomy. So if you really think about it, it's, it's a different game. It's just a different way of doing things. And so, you know, companies are, you know, struggling for growth and they're trying to do new projects. I just think it was never really a priority. Could you talk to me about some of the major difficulties we faced at the start of the transition versus what's happening now? The switch to remote work was not so much a difficulty. I mean, it was a difficulty for sure in terms of IT and all that kind of stuff, but those have been solved. The problem is not so much a problem like technic technicalities or IT or computers. It's a problem of mindset. And so you need you know, to change the mindset of the manager and you need to change the mindset of the employee. Employees are um, usually pretty excited about this mindset change because it means that they're going to have more autonomy, more independence. So typically they're in favor of it. I think, you know, this mindset is very is, is a lot easier for employees, but for managers, it's very difficult because it really speaks to what they believe to be the truth about human nature. Some managers have a bit of a cynical view of the manager-employee relationship. 
and you can see that it's a, it's a lot of times, you know, managers who micromanage you and they don't really give you any autonomy or any of that. And the reason they're doing it is because they actually don't believe you will, you would do the work unless you were told to do every single task. And so this is a pretty, I would say, negative view of, of remote work, but we've seen it. And what's difficult is this view is incompatible with remote work. You can't, you can't not trust people. You have to trust them if they're working remotely or you fire them. But you can't just have this suspicion, you know, that, that remote workers are not going to do anything because then you end up with all of these things. Like, you know, we've seen a lot about like screenshots that are taken of your computer so that your manager can know you're working and, you know, they're taking cameras and they're counting the, the number of hits of keys that you're hitting. But you see, they're just recreating all of these peripheral indicators of performance that actually don't mean anything. So that's a big change. That's not the type of beliefs that people really switch or change. For some managers, it's a bit distressing. And it was a bit distressing in the beginning because there was a lot of uncertainty. Now, and I'd like to talk more about that because in 2019, they had that choice, that, that, that ability to say, no, we're not going to work from home. And fast forward to 2020, they've lost that choice. So what was their mindset going into this? And what are they saying now one year in? You know, it's funny because so I did once, uh, I did skydiving for my 35th birthday. And I remember I was like so excited about this, about skydiving and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm in the plane and like that changed, you know, like I remember thinking like, why am I doing this? Like, this is so risky, you know? And I remember just like looking by the plane and I was like thinking I'm going to die like for sure. Like, you know, <laughs> I was like thinking this is like 99%, 99.5%. But I was lucky because had it been just me, I would never have gone. I would have like rationalized it, explained to everyone, you know what? I screwed up. I'm just going to pay you. I'm not going to do this. But they know, right, that beginners don't do that. So they just trap you to like a guy who usually is like bigger than you. So he can just wrestle you and push you out. And then that's how you do it. And then you're pushed out and then you do it. And then you realize, actually, that wasn't that bad. That was exciting. And that was fun. And now I remember why I did it. I feel like for a lot of managers, it's, it's been like that, you know, it's been like this jump that sounds very, very scary. And so you really have some managers, right, that just realized, oh, wait a minute, like, actually, it's working. You have other managers who've been really, really worried. And then it's been like a very toxic relationship. You know, like they don't trust, you know, their employees. And so it's like micromanaging. It's tons of meetings, you know, nonstop emails all the time and all that kind of stuff because the manager is worried. And so they're like white knuckling it. They just have like this grip, you know, that they're trying to keep on the team because they're terrified. And then you have like those that I see uh, who have like a rather, you know, uh, a rather positive view of, of mankind and of their teams. And for them, it's distressing, but for other reasons. I think for them, it's distressing because they realized, oh, like we actually don't have the right resources to help all of these people transition. And so they feel like personally responsible for what's going on with their team. And so I've met a lot of middle managers, right? They don't really have the authority like for the budgets or that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, they're like the first lines in terms of like seeing all of the problems that are going on with their with their employees. So that can be very stressful because they don't really have the resources to do all that stuff. Now, now that's interesting what you're saying, because what happened in early 2020 wasn't a controlled landing with a parachute. It, it was a it was a crash landing. 
But it's interesting because these giant companies would have said it would take years to do a full transition to work from home. So, so since we had to rush this process into a few weeks rather than years, does that mean we're still in the infantile stages of working from home in this country? And if so, where do we go from here? So it's it's actually really interesting what you're saying, because um, what I've noticed is in the very beginning of the transition, we were in an, like an urgency mindset. The, the country was closing and all that kind of stuff. I felt very, very compelled to write about what we know on, re- on remote work, because we know from 30 years of remote work that it's not just, it's not that easy. You can't just switch people. But Interestingly, um, companies and managers were like not that receptive at the time. I think it was really, really focused on the switch. We had to go very urgently, figure out the IT, you know, figure out all that kind of stuff. And and so this mindset of urgency, right? This mindset of like this is temporary. We need to like patch it, right? We need to to put a patch on it. It lasted for a while. And, and it was like a bit frustrating because on the one hand, you know, you could see like, you know, if you put like your, your finger to the air, you can see, right, that the change is going to be permanent. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of companies were still not doing the infrastructure changes, right, to make sure that all the employees would be like in good conditions. And so when I look now, now that we've been a year into it. Uh, it's really interesting because this effect of like this trust into remote work has strengthened in the sense that CEOs now are saying that it's just going to be here like to stay. You know, this is going to be a long term change um, and, and their companies are going to become more virtual. And I'd just like to touch on something you said earlier uh, about how for many CEOs, this was seen as a patch or a temporary fix. And I really resonated with that because I remember in March 2020, I was sitting at my office at work and I turned to my colleague and I said, we could be out of the office for weeks. And then I never went back. So the the issue is that they didn't provide the infrastructure to properly work from home long term. Could you tell me about the long term effects of this patch mindset? So, you know, this urgency mindset we talked about and this patch mindset we talked about, I think, you know, I've seen it early on, you know, there were just like signs that this was happening. And I think the main signs, and I'm sure a lot of of listeners can agree with this if they're working from home. I've seen a lot of companies, for example, refusing uh, to give budgets for people to be setting up at home. I've seen, you know, a lot of people have back problems. I've seen a lot of companies refuse that the employees would take their office chairs at home. You know, all sorts of things like that, when the company is refusing to pay for the internet or for an internet, you know, upgrade. The, the, the way people have been asked to telework is completely different from an actual telework program. An actual telework program doesn't happen this way. People are selected because their tasks are fitting. There is a study on like what are the different tasks, you know, that the person has to do, uh, what percentage can be done, what is the best day for this person to come back, you know, to the office and to work from home. So it's not like, oh, it's great. You work from home, you do nothing and your kids are here. It's more like, no, we're actually just helping you not having to commute. We're helping you having more of a flexible life, but this is still very structured. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been sent home in March and it was not structured at all because a lot of companies were hoping we would all come back, you know, within a couple of weeks, within a couple of months. And, and this has damaged, I think, you know, our, the effort um, into transitioning people efficiently. So do you see this transition not only affecting employees at work, but also people looking for work in the hiring market as a whole? 
it's interesting because I've seen, you know, some companies are saying things like, oh, we're, I think we're going to have everybody come back in the office. Or, you know, this was just an experiment. Everybody's going to come back. And that's interesting to me because it's, it's kind of a vision of society that's extremely static in the sense of like, how are you going to be the only large company that's refusing to everyone to work part-time from home? Like, how are you going to do that? Do you think you're going to retain your employees or are they just going to switch and go somewhere else? I mean, if it's, a, it's, if it's a significant change of quality of life for people, like don't think they're just going to stay there forever. So in my opinion, you know, a lot of companies just for the same reason, when they had low level employees like hotline workers and, and that kind of employees, one of the ways to make the work attractive was to switch them to telework so that you could have people who would say, you know, like I have an elderly parent, I'm going to accept this job so I can work from home and I can take better care of them, right? That's very, very motivating for someone. Well, if you tell that person and now they have to go, they have to go back to work, they're just going to switch jobs. They're just going to find another employer who will give them that arrangement because for them, that was actually critical to have it. So I think, you know, let's just face it. Most companies are saying it's going to be hybrid. Most companies already have made decisions. We've been here in a year. They had to renew leases. So many companies, so many CFOs are saying we didn't renew the lease. We, we stopped the project like expanding our offices. So now, you know, people are buying houses. They're going further, further away. I mean, this is something that's here to stay. This is where we're entering into a new era of more virtual work. I think research expected this to happen in the early 2000s. And, you know, we're 20 years after that. But, but this is really what's happening. I really don't see how, I mean, this is just out of the question that this would just kind of like go back and, you know, come back to a minority of like 4 or 5% of the population. Now, a lot of your insight comes from looking at transcripts of CEOs on earnings calls, updating investors on their businesses. Could you tell me what you've learned from that over the year? So um, there are currently on the New York Stock Exchange and on the NASDAQ, there are around 5,000 uh, international companies that are publicly listed. And so that means that all of these companies from all over the world, including Canada, every quarter... Um, they have meetings and they report their results. And they also have like an hour and a half of a meeting with investors and analysts who have questions to the CEO about the strategy and kind of like what's coming up, what's going to happen in this company. And so the CEO is answering a bunch of questions and all of these meetings are transcribed. And I've been mining, text mining these meetings for years because there, there's a lot of, of really interesting insights into the type of language that CEOs are using and how they communicate and how the stock market responds to it. In this project, I've been doing more of a qualitative analysis, so less focused on statistics, but really focusing on around 250 Canadian companies who are listed in the U.S. Um, I've also met over the months, you know, uh, a few top CEOs also, and to have like to have actual conversations. Uh, so it's kind of like a mix. My understanding is based on both what CEOs say to investors about their strategy, but also conversations that are more targeted where I was talking to the person. Um, and so this research has really helped me see over the past year how the language used by CEOs, the way they explain everything, how that changed, right? How CEOs changed their minds about remote work how their plans have been evolving over the year. Um, and so you can really extract some insights out of this. So you can see different themes, right, of what people are talking about. Now, how far back does your research go? And when you go back, what do you see these CEOs saying about work from home? I have data from 2006 
to yesterday. So the first like, you know, 14 years or 15 years of research that I have, there was close to no mention of, of remote work. It completely changed in March 2020 because uh, suddenly it became like the number one issue, which is how are we going to work? And, and so CEOs started talking about it. And also like a lot of analysts were asking a lot of pointed questions about it. And what are these analysts saying? Like, what are their concerns? Analysts are trying to get a sense of how the company is run and how decisions are made. And so they can really have, can really ask very, very specific questions to make sure that a company is doing things properly. And so a lot of questions were revolving around, are you doing the switching? How is all of that going on? You know, what are you doing? And so over the year, what you've seen is, is, is a progression of topics. In the very beginning, it was a lot about IT. It was a lot about making sure to tell investors everybody's fine, you know, we're working, all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, around the first semester, things were starting to look well. And so you had some, some factors that were positive and some factors that were negative. But so the positive factors you know, we're all around, you know, people are productive, people are happy about it, you know, work is being done, we're saving a bunch of money on real estate, on travel, like it doesn't seem like it's costing us, like it's not detrimental to anything. So, you know, I think a lot of companies were like very pleasantly surprised. And so this opened up a bunch of opportunities about how business would be run. But I think there is like this other kind of concern that I see, and and I think it's going to, it's going to be the most difficult to to address which is how do you sustain corporate culture in a virtual environment? And I'm saying this because a lot of the, the culture in organizations is tied to people being together. So if you just try to transpose what you do you know, uh, physically into what you do virtually, what you, what you end up having is a deterioration of your culture. It's, it's damaging to your culture because a lot of the events are not there anymore to support and strengthen the culture. So I think, you know, this is where there is, in my opinion, a, a very, very big challenge. And to me, you know, the, the, the challenge that, that's going on today with, with the pandemic is, is, of course, a medical challenge. And that's the main challenge, right? But it's also a leadership challenge. It's a big, big leadership challenge, meaning... It is the situation where you're going to see the difference between a manager and a leader, meaning someone who knows how to implement things, programmed responses, do what we already know how to do. That's a manager. A leader is someone who's able to see that the winds are changing. Things are different. And that means you can't rely on the same old ways of doing things. Now you need to think outside the box and you need to shift it. You need to think fresh and think new ideas. It's probably the biggest challenge that's happening in organizations right now because culture is related to absolutely everything when it comes to motivation, when it comes to people wanting to like go forward in the organization, feeling like they belong. You can inflict something on people, meaning you can send them home and they have like no office chair and they have a, a terrible internet, all that kind of stuff. And they're going to get along with it. You know, maybe they're just going to comply because they don't have a choice. It doesn't mean they're not going to adjust other things. If you think you can inflict terrible treatment or, or you know, subpar treatment to someone for six months to a year, and they're going to maintain their productivity, they're going to maintain their enthusiasm and their positive image of the company, you're mistaken. And has this issue of losing workplace culture made it to these higher level calls with the CEOs? 
the problem is like it, it hasn't a lot of time it's been used as a way to explain why remote work can't work. So it's a, it's a lot about saying, you know, um, oh, like we can't do it. We have to be all like in the same room. Right. Or we can't do it. You can't work from home. It's not the same. And I think, you know, what it shows and I think it's a bit of the problematic aspect of, you know, top managers discussing culture is I'm not sure that I agree with what they think culture is, meaning what they think it is and what I think it is, I think are two different things. Meaning if you think what, or in terms of research, what is culture? Culture is the guide for behavior. It's the DNA of your company. It is what enables, if somebody has been properly socialized in the organization, not only do they believe that they are a member, they're an in-group member, but they also have a very, very clear view of what they need to do to be promoted, to have rewards. They know exactly what not to do and they have like a clear path. They know without ambiguity what's going on, how they need to be working, all that kind of stuff. The problem is, so that's what I think is culture. A lot of times when you look at, you know, um, how, how a CEO is going to talk about culture, they're talking about, you know, artifacts, meaning uh, they're talking about expressions of culture. They're talking about the coffee machine. They're talking about uh, the water cooler. They're talking about stopping by someone's office. All of these are fine. They're, they're, all of these are the ways you can actually see the culture, right? But they're just like this, the superficial level. They're the tip of the iceberg. They're not what we care about. This is just how culture is enacted. And, and that's fine. But this is the part you have to replace. You can't, you can't enact um, the, the culture the same way. So what you have to do is you have to go deeper under the water. You have to look at all of these things that we actually do, these ceremonies, these meetings, the water cooler. What exactly is it reflecting? Why are we doing this? What are we trying to send as a signal to everybody when we're doing this? What are our underlying values, you know, below the surface? And so these underlying values, right, you need then to find a new way to enact them. You need to find new artifacts, new meetings, uh, a new way so that all of these values, you can find a different medium so that they can be imprinted into the person's brain, so the person can be socialized and really feel like they belong. This is why it's tricky, because you have two dynamics going on. Not only do you have socialized employees who are progressively losing you know, their perception of what the culture is, because you can't remove someone We've seen this from decades of research. You remove someone from the group, you put them in remote work full-time, they don't feel like they're part of the group anymore. So you already have your culture that's kind of like a sandcastle already kind of like flattening. You constantly have to like bring it back together so that it keeps its shape because your employees are all scattered. They're full-time employees. They're away. And so it's a lot harder for you to continue maintaining all of this culture. But then you also have the issue about what do we do about people who are on, like we need to onboard? What do we do about these external people, right? It's not so much the hiring. The hiring is fine. It's just how do I make that person from an external to an internal person? How do I transform that person from just like um, a McGill student to now being like this consultant? This is a lot harder because now it's not so much more about spending physical time in touch with like the consultant, the senior consultant and kind of like learning by doing and learning by seeing. Now it has to be a lot more intentional. 
And I think this is why it's very difficult because in addition to all of the difficulties that CEOs and managers have to deal with, now the culture is not even happening on its own anymore. Now you have to be intentional about it. And that's, that's why it's a big challenge. So is there any way to measure the workplace culture or you know, its deterioration? The results are difficult because it's kind of like a wasting away of the culture and it doesn't happen in, in two weeks. It happens over two, three years. So we'll see a lot of companies are not even going to realize it. And a lot of companies are not going to realize it because they have always taken culture as this thing that happens kind of like, you know, on the sidelines, it just happens on its own, kind of like a tree that's just growing on its own. And so now, you know, now you have to be a lot more specific about, you know, you remove the tree, what are you going to replace it with? You know, how are you going to have another tree? So now you have to think about it, right? It's not just this thing that was kind of happening because people like being together. Now you have to actually make it happen um, with intention. And so I think this is really what's, what's difficult now. And what's difficult is a lot of companies are not going to see that their culture is degraded because they don't track it. So you had been researching this for a while. And as a researcher, you got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity yeah. to see these theories happen in the real world. Were you surprised at any of the outcomes or was the pandemic just such a strange situation that the rules and theories kind of went out the window? You know, I mean, what happened is exactly what research had predicted and it's exactly what research has said for three decades. I mean, there is really nothing new. I mean, we know that people who work, who telework full time, we know it's not a good idea. We know it's very difficult. They start, they start thinking of themselves as consultant. There's a lot of mental health problems, a lot of job satisfaction problems. Uh, it's difficult for the culture. So already that, we already knew it would be like a massive issue, right? And so I wrote about it in March last year. And I think, you know, this is definitely what, what's been happening throughout the year, which is mental health has been an issue and people have been having a hard time feeling that they belong. I think, you know, definitely the issues in terms of management, you know, managing people, not explaining to them how they need to work, but focus more on why they need to work. Right. That's also something that I had identified last year. And it's definitely, it's, you know, I didn't make it up. Like it's all part of like a well-established body of research on remote work that already shows, right, that you can't micromanage remote workers. And so there's been like a lot of different aspects, right, about this transition that have already been completely predicted, you know, by research. And I don't know if they could have been avoided because there are problems anyway, but they could have been anticipated better. For sure. So we have a few policy influencers who listen to this. Do you have any advice on how to make this form of work sustainable for the long term? I think policymakers have to have a serious look at the actual conditions people are in when they work from home. And I'm saying this because a lot of a lot of workplace conditions are, you know, regulated when it's in the central office, but a lot less when it's people working from home and especially with COVID-19. Meaning uh, I've, I know personally, and I've talked to a lot of people who are in all sorts of work conditions, some of them with kids, some of them without kids, some of them with like a specific office, others without it, some of them without a proper office chair. I mean, all sorts of conditions. And so I think this needs to be squared up. This needs to be cleaned up and addressed. I understand that this is something that's kind of like Pandora's box, because then you're going to realize that not everybody's doing great. And a lot of people are in pretty bad conditions, but it's extremely important. This is really the key to the economic recovery. 
once the pandemic is over. People have to be in good working conditions. People have to be in a good mindset and have to have a good mental health. I think, you know, I appreciate all the efforts, you know, that have been done, but I'm just saying like, we could have done it earlier. We know that this is going to stay here for a long time. And personally, it just like, it just upsets me to think, you know, that there are a lot, there are a lot of employees right now who are in some sort of deregulated environment with maybe very poor management or very, very poor working conditions. And there is absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel, meaning there is no way to really change it. There is no regulation that's going to force the employer to do it. So it's it's very distressing and I, my heart breaks for people like that. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, that is certainly something we'll have to think about going forward. Jean-Nicolas, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Where can we find you if people want to learn more? Sure. So you can uh, go on my website, which is reyt.net. And so I post uh, my newsletter and uh, all the interviews that I do. And you can have more information uh, about me and ways to contact me. I want to say thanks again to Jean-Nicolas for joining me on the podcast today. If you would like to learn more about digital connectivity in the COVID era and beyond, check out Policy Options' new series on that topic at policyoptions.irpp.org. If you would like to get into contact with us, send us an email at policyoptions@irpp.org or on social media under the handle IRPP. And if you'd like to send me a message, you can do so on Twitter at columfosullivan. That's C-O-L-M-F O'Sullivan. Thanks again for listening.